So our people are unique. We are God's chosen people, chosen in the sense that we have a covenant, or maybe a more commonly used word would be deal. We have a deal with God, a treaty that we made with God. In our early history, our people and our ancestors made a number of covenants with God. Now, the most important covenant, and we were touching on this before, was the one that our people made at God, with God at Sinai. When we committed to follow God's commandments and we became God's chosen people. And starting with that covenant, God gave Moses a series of commandments, which by the end totaled 613 commandments. And we as a people committed to following those commandments and we became God's chosen people. That is our primary covenant. When we call ourselves B'nai Brit, members of God's covenant, we are primarily referring to that covenant at Sinai. There was a subsequent covenant right before they entered the land of Israel. Um, Moses kind of renewed the covenant with God. Um, but there were earlier covenants beforehand with our ancestors. So God in this week's Parsha makes two covenants with Abraham. Abraham is um, really the first one of our ancestors that God made a covenant with. God, of course, made a covenant last week with Noah that he won't destroy the world again, and the sign of that was the rainbow. But in this week's reading, God makes a two-part covenant with Abraham. The first is this unique prophecy and experience in Hebrew called the Brit Bain Habitarim, or the covenant between the pieces. And we'll soon explain why it's called that. The second, or really cementing the first covenant, was the circumcision at the end of the Parsha, which is a sign in Abraham's flesh and in all future male descendants of God's covenant with us, and that finalizes the covenant. God then continues this covenant with Isaac and says, I am continuing the covenant I made with Abraham, tells Isaac that. God says the same thing to Jacob, I am continuing the covenant I made with Abraham and Isaac, I'm continuing it with you. Um, and then later, when God appears to Moses to, and tells him to take the people, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, out of Egypt, it is as a continuation of that covenant that he had made with Abraham and brings them to Sinai and then actually makes the ultimate covenant or the primary covenant with them at Sinai. But all this is a continuation of the original covenant that God made with Abraham, the Brit Ben Abtarim, the covenant between the pieces. It's all a continuation, fulfillment of this original covenant. So our original covenant deal, treaty, connection with God began with this Brit Ben Abtarim, this covenant between the pieces. Yes and no. Why then did God offer his covenant to the one he gave us at Sinai to other people? That's an excellent question. There is a midrash that says, and implies so in the Torah, that God did offer others the covenant with of Abraham. Um, whether God was serious about it or not uh, itself is debated. Uh, but regardless, all the people whom God offered that covenant to were also Abraham's descendants. He offered them to the Ammonites and Moabites with the sense of his nephew Lot, sort of his the sense of his adopted son, um, a nephew. Um, and they were, and the Yishmaelites, the sense of Yishmael, 
and the Edomite descendants of Asaph, Isaac's son. So they were all his descendants. And they were all monotheistic? No. Oh, okay. <clears throat> that was the thing I was curious about. Yeah. When God makes a commandment to like circumcision, does he explain why? We did a class some time ago about circumcision. I mean, I know it's healthy for the women. It's a time, it's... It's it's a sub it's a subject of its own. Again, we have a podcast we spoke about circumcision previously. So before we get into the story of the covenant and the details that it contained, which I will get to very soon, let's first talk about the circumstances of how it happened, the context of when it happened and how it happened. The Torah tells us that at a certain point, we don't know exactly at which how old he was, Abraham moved with his father, his brother Nachor, and their entire family, his nephew Lot, their entire family, from ur where they had grown up in Mesopotamia, to Haran, um, which is in um, Aram Naharaim, or today eastern Turkey. They were on their way to the land of Canaan, the Torah tells us, but they only got as far as Haran, and they stopped on the way to Canaan, and they stopped over there and ended up settling over there. Um, why they left ur the Torah doesn't tell us. The Midrash tells us that Abraham was getting himself into big trouble as a monotheist in, a, um, in Mesopotamia, which at the time was controlled by Nimrod, who was, a, um, who was an absolute ruler and considered himself a deity and was therefore offended by Abraham's monotheism, and uh, Abraham was getting himself into trouble, and he was even thrown into a fire, and he miraculously survived. And so because of that, they, had, they were forced to flee. That's why the family left. So Abraham is now 75 years old. God told Abraham and Sarah to leave Haran and move to the land of Canaan. And he lives for another 100 years, till 175 in the land of Canaan. It's some years later... Less than 10, because 10 years later he married Hagar. Before he marries Hagar, this incident happens. So within the next 10 years, between when he's 75 and 85, his nephew Lo gets captured in this war between a bunch of Mesopotamian kings that come from Mesopotamia and attack the town of Sodom. Abraham fights these kings and their armies and manages to free his nephew. It was after that incident that Abraham had the conversation with God that led to the covenant. So therefore, it happened after that incident. Now, if we look forward in the Torah, in the book of Exodus, the Torah tells us when the people leave Egypt, in the book of Exodus, in the portion of Bo, the Torah tells us that the people were in Egypt for four Hundred and thirty years. Now we know for certain in the covenant that God's going to speak to Abraham, he's going to mention they're going to be slaves for 400 years. We know for certain from multiple clues in the Torah, in addition to our oral tradition, that from the time that Jacob and his family arrived in Egypt until they left Egypt, led by Moses, was closer to 200 years. Could not have been 400 years. There's no way it could have been 400 years. There simply were not enough generations, not enough time had lapsed. It couldn't be 400 years. According to our tradition, it is, they were there actually for 210 years. So the question is, so why then does the Torah say 430 years? So it wasn't just the land of Egypt, but 430 years of their, so of their travels until they 
left Egypt. From kind of the beginning of the story of our family until we left Egypt was 430 years. So when does that story start? So it starts for, so, to, so Seder Olam, which is our earliest book of Jewish history, it's over 2,000 years old, says, well, if you tra trace back 430 years, it would go back to when Abraham was 70 years old. The Exodus was exactly 500 years after Abraham's birth. And so according to our tradition, so for, if you trace back 430 years, it would be when Abraham was 70 years old. What happened when Abraham was 70 years old? So Seder Olam says, well, that was when God made the covenant with Abraham. They made the covenant, the Brit Bein Abtarim, the covenant between the pieces, was when Abraham was 70 years old, five years before Abraham moved to the land of Canaan, the promised land, what would become the promised land. Now, there's no question that the covenant itself happened in the promised land because God said, the land that you are in, I will give this land to your descendants. Clearly, Abraham was in the promised land. And therefore, Seder Olam says, yes, Abraham um, visited the promised land, the land of Canaan, five years earlier. He was there. That's when he had made this covenant with God. And then he left and went back to Haran. Five years later, God told him to move to the land of Canaan. But he had been there five years earlier, and that's when the covenant was. Now, that's what, that's what Seder Olam says, and many um, accept this as that is when the covenant happened. From the story of the Torah, it does imply the covenant happened later after Abraham's war with the four kings, which was a couple years later, after Abraham had already moved, after he was already 75 years old. How do they resolve this 430 years? What happened when Abraham was 70? So it's generally suggested that that's when they left Orkastin. That's when they left Mesopotamia and moved to Haran when Abraham was 70. Five years later, they moved to the Promised Land. And so we're counting the 430 years counts from Abraham's first travels from his original homeland. And so we, we have this kind of debate as to exactly when it occurred. Did it occur when he was 70? Did it occur when he was older than 75, but younger than 85? Whichever one it was, we don't know for certain. So is that when uh, we became, the Judaism started? In a sense, remember, the, the covenant that we have with God as God's chosen people happened at Sinai. But this is a prelude to that covenant. So this is kind of early Judaism, pre-Judaism, began with Abraham. Right, and Abraham was how old when? He, we know he left Haran and came to Canaan at 75. When this covenant happened, there's some debate. It may have happened when he was 70. That's what Seder Olam says. Or it may have happened when he was over 75. It's a couple-year debate. We don't know which one. Okay. The Torah also gives no indication where Abraham was when it took place, other than he was in the land of Canaan. Canaan was the original name for the land of Israel. God said, the land that you are on, I am going to give to you and your descendants. So clearly he is in this land, in the promised land, but it's a big land. Where in the land was he? The Torah doesn't tell us where he was. 
He could have been in Hebron, which is where he was living at the time, if it happened later, right? He would have been living in Hebron. It could have happened over there. But interestingly, we actually have a tradition um, that's first mentioned about 500 years ago, but presumably much older than that, that there is actually a mountain in northern Israel, at the very northern tip of Israel, next to Mount Hermon, um, there is a mountain called Har Habitarim, the mountain of the pieces. And it is called by that name because that is the mountain, and the Arabs have a similar name in Arabic, because that is the mountain that the tradition says where Abraham had this vision and where he made this covenant with God. Which, if Abraham had this vision after he had waged war against these four kings, and we know he caught up to the kings at Dan, Dan is at the very northern tip of Israel. And he, um, and he chased them all the way to Chova, which is north of Damascus. That's what the Torah tells us. We don't know what Chova is, but we know where Damascus is. And so um, then it makes a lot of sense that Abraham then returned and on his way back to Hebron, he's heading south, he passes Mount Hermon, traveling from Damascus, Hermon, and Mount Betarim is just is southwest of Damascus, not very far. It's about 20, 30 miles from Damascus. It's pretty close. And so on his way back to Hebron, he travels through there. He stops there, perhaps, and um, you know, camp there um, with his people. And that is where, the, at least according to our tradition, where the event actually happened. So historically, actually, this week is Parshat Lech Lecha, when we have the story of this covenant. And so historically, Jews always would go on Parshat Lech Lecha to Har Betarim, to the Mount of the Covenant, um, to on for that the week of Parshas Lech Lecha, or at least during this week, to go and pray over there in the place where God made the covenant with Abraham. Um, and so historically, Jews always went there. Unfortunately, following um, 1948, um, Israel lost access to that to Mount Betarim. Um, the Syrians took control of it. It's on the Lebanese border. It, uh, the Syrians took control of it. Jews were not able to go there for some time. Um, after 1967, they started going there again. Unfortunately, because the northern border of Israel is very unsafe, um, Mount Betarim is literally on the border. Um, and so it is, and there's been a lot of skirmishes there. You live there? For six months on the Lebanese border. On the Lebanese border. Yeah, uh, in the Kibbutz. Okay. So... So Mount Betarim is really on the border, um, and so you often, uh, it's often referred to as Mount Dove, um, or um, sometimes they use a, um, the, they don't want to use uh, Hebrew names or Jewish names for it, so they often refer to it as Sheba Farms, but it's, it's a mountain, it's not a farm. Um, but it's, it's, it's a mountain, and it's um, part of, um, it's part of Israel, but it's really on the border, so it's not so safe. So today only small groups go with Israeli soldiers accompanying them because you're really within shooting distance of the border. Um, so anyway, that's where, at least possibly according to our tradition, the covenant happened.
So the story of the covenant itself begins with a fascinating conversation between God and Abraham. God appears to Abraham following the um, following this war, presumably, unless it happened earlier, and appears to Abraham and says, Do not worry, Abraham. You will have very great reward. Why was Abraham worried? Commentaries offer different explanations, either because God had... Um, given him such a great victory. He thought maybe he's kind of used up all of his credit that God had given him um, in this victory against these kings. Uh, but others say that simply he had killed people. He had gone to war and he had killed people. And um, today we have the um, post-traumatic stress uh, that people get from, part of it comes from killing people, um, which is a horrific thing, a horrific feeling, even if you did so justly. Uh, but he had killed people, and therefore he felt guilty. And so God told him, do not worry, don't be afraid. Um, and so Abraham uses the opportunity of this prophecy to tell God, when God says, you'll don't worry, you're okay, you'll have a great reward. God did not hold it against him that he had killed people, he shouldn't feel guilty about it. God, Abraham says, I don't need any reward. Of what value is the reward? I have no children. He was childless. And so God then reassures Abraham. He already promised him he would have a child. God, when he told him to go to the promised land, and you will over there have children. And so Abraham then reassures, God then reassures Abraham, although if it happened before he went to the promised land, then this is the first time God is telling him this. He reassures him that he will have a child who will continue his legacy. And then he takes him outside and tells him, look up to the sky and count the stars. And says, your children will be as many as the stars. So the Torah tells us Abraham trusted God, trusted that he will fulfill his promise. And then God then tells Abraham that he is going to give his descendants this land, the land of Canaan. So God, uh, Abraham then asks God for a sign that his children will get the land of Canaan. So there's various reasons given why Abraham actually asked God for a sign. Rashi says, that Abraham wanted to know why should they deserve it? What, in what merit will they get it? Ramban says that Abraham was concerned because what if they sin? What if they do bad? What if they don't deserve it? Will they still get it? Are you guaranteeing it? In other words, he was asking for a guarantee. And indeed, in that sense, the covenant is that guarantee. No matter what, no matter what happens, even if they do everything wrong, I am guaranteeing. It's a deal that I am guaranteeing that I will give them the land. So that's why Abraham was asking for a covenant. He was concerned maybe they won't be worthy. Maybe they won't deserve getting this land. God says, I am giving you a covenant. I am going to guarantee that no matter what happens, your descendants are going to get this land. But in this covenant, God is going to share with him, there's more to it. It's not just getting free land. There's more to it. It's going to be very costly for them to get this land. They're not going to get this land very, they're not going to get this land very easily. So, so God reassures Abraham they're going to get the land. He makes this covenant with him. So as part of this covenant, God tells him to do the following. 
God says, take three calves, three calves, baby cows, three goats, three lambs, as well as a dove and a turtle dove. He's to slaughter these animals and cut them in half, putting one half on each half of each animal, a little bit away from each other, creating a line of half animal, two lines of half animals with a path in between. Why was he to do this? So the simple reason is that this was the ancient in that region of the world. This was the way they would make covenants. When they would make treaties or deals between tribes, this is the way they would do it. They would take animals, they would cut them in half and walk between the pieces. The doing so symbolizes to both parties that they are two halves of a whole. They're two halves, they're united, they are together. In fact, the, the Hebrew word for a covenant is a brit, right? People often call a circumcision a brit, but brit actually means covenant. Circumcision is... Circumcision is mila. Brit mila means covenant of circumcision, right? People get confused with that. So brit is a covenant. Now, when you make a covenant, the Hebrew word is koret brit, which literally translates as cutting or slicing the covenant. You slice a covenant. Why do you, and we still, interestingly, we still use that, deal, that word in English. We say you cut a deal, right? Which is a translation of the Hebrew koret brit, cut a deal. But why cut? Because in ancient times, they used to cut animals and that was part of making the covenant um, and also often in hebrew we use the term when you finalize the covenant you use the term to pass through the covenant because they would kind of make these two lines of half animals and then the people would walk in between the line through this path created so they would pass through and that's why we often have this term passing through la avor barbrit to pass through a covenant so that was the commonly common form of covenant so given that that was the normal way to make a covenant god took regular cultural traditions at the time regular culture and did the same thing with abraham however our sages say that each of these things that Abraham had have great significance. This covenant is a covenant for the future of Abraham's descendants. His, and par a particular group, he's going to have many descendants that are going to become many different peoples, but a particular group that's going to continue the covenant, the, what's going to later be the Jewish people, the people of Israel. So this treaty with God, this deal with God is going to be very, is, is going to be very important for our history, and therefore every detail has great symbolism. So Rashi already points out that each of the animals that are used in this covenant, cows, sheep, and goats, are each animals that will later be sacrificed in the temple. When we build a temple, we sacrifice three animals, cows, sheep, and goats, as well as two types of birds, doves and turtle doves. So these are all the animals that will be sacrificed later in the temple. 
But commentaries also connect these types of animals to different nations that will rule over Israel in biblical times. The various nations that rule over Israel are already mentioned or alluded to in the book of Daniel. We once did a class on Daniel. Daniel speaks of various visions that King Nebuchadnezzar has, that he himself has. And in those different visions, they see um, things that allude to various empires. And so um, our sages say that these animals allude to the various empires that are going to rule over Israel. Um, the first one, of course, is Egypt. Um, Egypt is alluded to in the cow. And then the next one is the Babylonians that are going to rule over Israel. And then the third one is either the Persian Medes that are going to rule after the Babylonians or um, the Greeks or the Romans. Um, and there's various ways to some skip Egypt. There's various ways to explain which animal refers to what. But these are various um, nations that later are going to subjugate us, subjugate our people. That is why these animals are cut in half, to symbolize that these nations will eventually be destroyed. Or in cutting these animals in half, Abraham was symbolically weakening these nations so that their hold over our people when they rule over us will be limited and they will not be able to destroy us. The birds, however, do not get cut because they represent Israel. Israel's represented in the birds, and therefore the birds don't get cut. So do they need four, two, and two? Four what? Four birds. <coughs> There's two birds. There's two birds. There's only two birds. One dove and one turtle dove. One's put on each side. The, no, the birds were not cut. Only the animals were cut. So they're not the same birds on each side? No. So the, then the Torah tells us, in telling us the story of this covenant, a raven came and to eat the animal carcasses that Abraham had cut, and Abraham shoot it away. And so there's, of course, significance in this part of the story, too. Rashi tells us that the raven is, represents King David. King David is going to build, essentially, the first and really only Jewish empire. He's going to build an empire that is going to, he's going to capture all the lands around Israel and control the entire Levant, the entire eastern coast of the Mediterranean from the Euphrates River in northern Syria, going all the way down to the Sinai Desert. That whole region is going to be controlled by King David. And so God is, so he's going to rule over the nations, but God is going to cut down his kingdom or end his reign and diminish Jewish rule because it's not yet time for our people to rule over other nations. That time will come in the future when Moshiach comes. Our prophets tell us Moshiach will rule over the entire world. But that will only be in the center of the day. That will only be in the future. So Rashi sees the raven like the other birds as representing King David or the Jewish people. However, another classic medieval commentary, Rav David Kimchi, known as Radak, says, no, the raven represents the anti-Semites. And it didn't attack the other carcasses, it attacked the birds. 
the birds representing Israel, and the raven represents anti-Semites that are throughout the nations are going to stand up to destroy us. As we say in our Haggadah on Passover, that in every generation they stand up against us to destroy us, and God always saves us from their hands. So the birds are alive, because they're not cut in half. No, they're all slaughtered. Everything's slaughtered. Well, they're slaughtered, they're just not cut in half. Everything is slaughtered. So now there, I should mention there is some debate among commentaries. While most commentaries see this kind of as actually happening, there are some commentaries, my monies and others, that say the whole thing was a vision. So the cutting the animals and passing between the animals and the raven was all part of the vision that Abraham had, all part of the prophecy. Most commentaries see this as God telling him to do it, and he actually did it in real life. Um, but some do say that, no, this was all part of the vision. Regardless, it was definitely all, it still, still has the same, whether it happened in reality, it was just part of the vision that Abraham saw, it still has the same symbolism and the same meaning for um, our history and for Abraham's descendants. What does prophecy feel like? That is a very good question. We did a class on prophecy. <laughs> so does he actually see God? We'll talk about that later. So again, it's, 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 this, the, the answer is more than a one-line answer. So we'll talk about it later. So Abraham then falls into, the Torah tells Abraham then falls into a deep sleep and feels this great fear and darkness. Rashi tells us the fear and the darkness represents the troubles, the persecution that his descendants will face in their exile. And so in his prophecy, he's going to experience this persecution and troubles and pain that his descendants are going to feel. And that's why he has this great feel, fear and darkness. And God then tells Abraham, you should know that your descendants will be slaves in a foreign land for 400 years. And as we mentioned, they weren't actually slaves for 400 years. They were only, slaves, they were only in Egypt for 210 years and slaves for a little over 100 years, which is still a very long time. And then he tells them, then they are going to leave and they're going to come back to this promised land, the land of Canaan. I'll soon get into the details of exactly what God told him. Abraham then sees an oven, a fiery furnace with a flaming fire filled with smoke pass on the path between the pieces. Now simply that would represent God. In a covenant, both parties of the deal, when you would make a deal or a treaty, both parties of the deal would walk through this path between these pieces they would cut. And so Abraham did that. And now it was God's turn to do it. God, of course, is not everywhere and has no form. But the, this oven with the smoke and, fur, and the furnace with the smoke and, um, and fire represented God passing through us all in Abraham's vision represents God kind of committing to the deal as well. And we do find later when Israel stands at Sinai to make our covenant with God, God appears to us through 
fire and smoke at Sinai, so we see the same impact. Now, why God has a tendency to appear through fire and smoke, Kabbalah sees great, um, uh, great um, metaphoric meaning behind the fire, the fire representing the flame of God, representing what we call or light in um, in Jewish mysticism, with the smoke representing what we call the tzimtzum, or God contracting or covering himself. Smoke is a screen, right, that blocks you from seeing. So God appears to Abraham in this way as passing through the covenant. But some commentaries actually see the smoke and fire as part of the predictions that God is predicting to Abraham of what will happen to his descendants. And the smoke and fire representing the nations of the, of the world that will persecute us. And so we Jews, his descendants, will face smoke, will face fire, and suffer in, through smoke and fire. And so it's really part of the prediction of what the suffering that will happen to his descendants. Other commentaries see it not as suffering that will happen to his descendants, but referring to purgatory, Gehenom in Hebrew, and the punishment that awaits those that persecuted us. We do believe, and our prophets mentioned many times, that those that persecute us themselves will eventually be punished, whether in this world or in the next world um, after, de after death. And um, this Fire and furnace represents that. Exactly what happens after death we spoke about in another class and not for now. So in this powerful vision, God makes a number of predictions to Abraham. Firstly, he told him, as we mentioned, that his descendants will be slaves before getting the promised land. They'll be slaves in a foreign land for 400 years. It is a clear reference to the slavery in Egypt, where Israel's descendants, the Abraham's descendants will be slaves in Egypt. The Torah then, the God then tells Abraham, the people who enslave them will be punished, which is clearly a reference to the 10 plagues, right? That they will be punished through these 10 plagues. Now, one question which I'm going to raise, but I'm not going to answer, that is asked by many commentaries, and you can shut your phone so it doesn't do that. So, so, so. God then, so clearly the, the um, slavery is a reference to slavery in Egypt, the ten plagues to a reference to the punishment. One question that all Jewish philosophers have asked and many commentaries have asked is, well, if the, God predicted the people will be slaves in Egypt and the Egyptians will enslave them, then how could the Egyptians be punished? Did they really have choice, right? And that is kind of one of the crucial questions when we have the free choice discussion. We've done a class on free choice um, and the Jewish belief in free choice. We do believe in free choice and how exactly it works. I'm not going to get into the short, simple answer without delving into it is that, well, God gave a general prediction that they will be enslaved. God did not command any particular Egyptian to enslave the people. So no particular Egyptian needed to do it. They did it on their own. Each individual. It was a general prediction for our people. 
So, um, so anyway, so God tells Abraham they will come out um, from this, um, they will come out, and then they will leave with great wealth, which indeed they leave with the wealth of the Egyptians, and then they will come and they will receive the promised land, the land of Canaan. God doesn't tell Abraham why his descendants need to be slaves before they can come into the promised land. He also doesn't mention one crucial detail that is clearly part of this whole thing, which is as part of being slaves and coming into the promised land, on their way out of slavery towards the promised land, his descendants are going to make a covenant with God, which will involve becoming God's chosen people, being given a mission and commandments, 613 commands that they're going to have to fulfill. And then they're going to get the promised land where they will fulfill these commandments, being becoming God's chosen people. So those details are not explicitly mentioned in the Torah, although they are implied and that appears to have been part of the covenant that the, God is making a covenant your descendants will be slaves but why will they be slaves God doesn't tell Abraham later Moses tells the people why they're going to be slaves Moses uses the metaphor of your slavery in Egypt was like an iron kiln an iron kiln where you melt the iron ore to extract the iron from the ore and so it is a way to cleanse the iron. It's a way to extract iron from ore. In the same way, the slavery in Egypt was a cleansing process for our people. Now exactly how we were cleansed and what it did for us is a discussion of its own. Um, I don't want to get into great detail. Um, on a very simple level, God cleansed us in the sense that um, every nation, every group has their own values, their own traditions, their own culture. God wanted to break our culture and kind of start afresh with a clean slate. And so therefore, after being slaves, we lost any culture, any sense of personality, any sense of nationhood. And so then we were able to start again from fresh, um, start anew. It also gave us the sense of being slaves. Many times the Torah mentions that God takes us out of Egyptian slavery to become God's slaves. So our freedom was becoming God's slaves. So that obedience, we were essentially trained into obedience and slavery to become obedient, teach us to become obedient to God. So those are some reasons why God wanted us to be slaves first. But God did want us to be slaves, but then that was in order to become God's slaves, to become God's servants, to be to give us his commandments, become his chosen people, and then to be given, as part of that, to be given the land promised to Abraham. Yes? You might have already had a class on this, but um, how did these people become slaves in the first place? I mean, were they already living there when they became slaves? Or was it because they didn't believe in multiple gods? Um, so the short answer is, the short answer how we became slaves, the Torah tells us, um, in the story, they came down to Egypt because Joseph was the leader in Egypt and there was a famine. Joseph promised to support them through the famine. So that's how they all ended up in Egypt. Um, Joseph dies. Um, they all die. And then they grow very quickly into these very large people. And the Egyptians dislike them. And so Pharaoh decides to enslave them. That's, a, that's the short story. That the Torah tells. But they do become slaves because of that. And they're slaves for some time, for generations. Yes. God promises Abraham 
promised land mm -hmm. and, and that all these descendants was the intention that we should stay in the promised land and not go to So Moses tells us this land, promised land be, remains our land forever, even when we're driven out. But Moses tells us that if we fail to live up to the covenant, if we don't keep the covenant, we will be driven out of the land. Which it's has happened. A struggle. It's a constant. History has been a struggle. Absolutely. No, I mean, it's been a struggle. You're absolutely right. And it was most of our history. We didn't have the land of Israel. We were thrown out of Israel for a very long time. We never had peace there. So this covenant that God made with Abraham was the beginning of the relationship that our people have with God. It was a prelude to our primary covenant at Sinai, a prelude to the slavery in Egypt, to the exodus from Egypt, to the covenant at Sinai, and to coming to the promised land of Israel. So it began our relationship with God. And that relationship is repeatedly framed as a Brit, as a covenant. In fact, we Jews refer to ourselves as B'nai Brit, members of the covenant. That's the technical term. Someone joins the Jewish people, converts to Judaism. How do you do that? Not by eating bagels and locks. How do you join the covenant? You join the covenant by join. So you become a Jew by joining the covenant, by becoming, by taking the certain steps we do to become, to join the covenant, um, the same steps that Israel took at Sinai. But there's certain steps for joining the covenant. We have to join that covenant with God. A Jew, by definition, is the members of that covenant with God. So we Jews frame our relationship with God as a covenant, as a deal, as a treaty that we have made with God. It's more than a treaty, because a treaty is usually each side can pull out whenever they want, usually in treaties. But a, this is a covenant or an oath that you cannot pull out of. It's something that's been cemented, that's been finalized that cannot be changed, that, cannot, you, that neither side can walk away from. And so it began the first covenant with Abraham, but each side guaranteeing that no matter what, this cannot be broken. And that's how we always frame it, as this eternal covenant that can never, ever be broken. We have signed on to this covenant, our ancestors that is, signed on for all future generations. They have this iron-clad covenant with God that no Jew can ever walk away from. Once you have entered the covenant, you don't have the option of saying, I don't want it, I want to walk away. That's not an option. Abraham entered the covenant with God, he couldn't walk away. It was, his descendants were now on that path towards the ultimate covenant at Sinai. We built this covenant with God. It's not something that we have the option of ever walking away from. We are permanently part of it. As the Talmud says, Yisrael af al pishachata, Yisrael who? An Israelite that sins remains an Israelite. You have no ability to walk away. God for his part assured us that he won't walk away either. No matter what we do, he will never walk away from the covenant because he may punish us he may cause us to suffer, he may drive us from the land, but he will never forsake the covenant because it is an ironclad covenant, it is a permanent covenant sworn by God's sworn word. And God's, just as God is eternal, his words are eternal. And so it's an eternal covenant that can never be changed. 
And so this Brit Bein HaBetarim, this covenant between the pieces that started with Abraham and began this covenant of Abraham's future descendants, that they will eventually be slaves, be freed, stand at Sinai, make a covenant with God, and enter the, be given the promised land, that covenant is all something that we are in permanently, God is in permanently, and that begins our permanent relationship with God that can never ever be changed, that neither us nor God will ever walk away from. We remain in it forever. And we do believe that we will once, even when we move away from it, even when um, God punishes us for our transgressions, nevertheless, eventually we will come back and reunite. Um, and eventually God promises us that we will eventually repent and we will eventually come back to God. God will come back to us, restore our land, restore our, his relationship, with, his open relationship with our people. Um, and we do believe that that will eventually happen um, at the end of times with the coming of Moshiach.